I'm Charlotte Leslie, the Director of the Conservative Middle East Council, and welcome to the CMEC podcast. With the eyes of the world on the unfolding conflict in Gaza, attention has been averted from what is happening in the occupied West Bank, where 123 Palestinians have also been killed in violence since the horrific Hamas attacks against Israel on October the 7th. The West Bank has witnessed many incidents of settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank in recent months, and this has intensified since October the 7th, an issue recently raised by President Joe Biden. Here to talk about what is going on, I am joined from the West Bank by award-winning journalist Gareth Brown. Gareth, welcome. You're no stranger to reporting from conflict zones. So before we start, could you just tell us briefly a bit about yourself? Yeah, I've been working in, you know, in the Middle East as a journalist since 2016. I studied Arabic at university and then I immediately went to northern Iraq. I spent the first year of my career covering the offensive against ISIS in Mosul. And since then, I've reported from Syria. Uh, I was based in Lebanon for a few years. And then about two years ago, I moved to Ramallah in the occupied West Bank, where I've been ever since. So you've seen the situation escalating in the West Bank from Ramallah for a couple of years. What's been going on? What's the context to where we are now? Yeah, I think there's been some interesting interesting changes in, in the two years I've been here. I think there was an assumption that the West Bank was becoming more of a centre of, of violence within the conflict. If we look at the Gaza Strip and, and Hamas's control there, they've run that enclave for, for over a decade. They've actually kind of stayed out of rounds of fighting with Israel in the past couple of years. They, I mean, they had a big war with Israel in in 2011, but there've been two escalations from Gaza since then. But those escalations were done by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is a militant group with much closer ties to Iran. And the assumption was that Hamas was staying out of these things and it wanted to keep the situation in Gaza quiet. So we were seeing these new militant groups emerge in the West Bank. So particularly cities like Nablus and then the Janine refugee camp. So this increase in violence coincided with, I can almost describe it as a rotting of the Palestinian Authority, which is the administrative body which runs the West Bank. And it was, you know, born out of the Oslo Accords in 1993. So as for various reasons that we can get into, the Palestinian Authority's authority has shrunk in the West Bank, kind of smaller, more disparate armed groups had, had filled that gap, particularly in, in Janine and Nablus. That also coincided with you know, this new government of, of Benjamin Netanyahu, which came to power at the end of last year, he brought in some, and some members of the extreme right uh, and the settler community. And that's really emboldened and enabled settler violence all across the West Bank. So it's been a, a kind of confluence of factors, the deterioration of the Palestinian Authority, a far more right wing government in Israel, which has certainly turned a blind eye to settler violence. And then the focus by the likes of Hamas on, on kind of disrupting things and destabilizing the West Bank. So the, the kind of general consensus before October 7th was it was all eyes on the West Bank. This is where the next problem or future problems are going to arise from. And I think everyone sort of took their eyes off, off Gaza. Certainly the Israelis did. And this is an assumption we're having to, to question now. Has there been an increase in presence of the army, the IDF, in the West Bank with settlers more broadly? 
Yeah, I think the, it's it's more the makeup of the IDF in the West Bank that has changed since the October the seventh. There were there were a lot of a lot more forces were, were sent into the West Bank as a result of this violence I described over the last year or year and a half. And you know they were kind of largely there to try to keep a lid on this this settler violence. I think since October seventh, we've obviously had Israel calling up hundreds of thousands of reservists and they're sending lots of forces to the south you know, to the Gaza area, but also to the north, where, where there's kind of tensions building with, with Hezbollah and Palestinian militant groups in the south of Lebanon. But we've seen now a makeup of the IDF in the West Bank, which is kind of more made up of, of settlers. And it has an effect on how the soldiers behave, their rules of engagement. And now we're, we're seeing really one of the most violent periods in the West Bank for a very long time. Last year was the most violent year in the West Bank for Palestinians for about 20 years. And at the current rate, this month could actually surpass all of last year. You know, we're well into the hundreds in terms of Palestinians who've already been killed, you know, by the IDF, but also by by settlers. So I think since October the 7th, we've seen all of these issues exacerbated. We're, it's, it's almost like the violence has been cranked up a few notches and the, the tolls in the West Bank are really devastating, you know, almost regardless of what's happening in Gaza. We've had some pretty awful stories about settlers uprooting Palestinian farms, bulldozing olive groves. In what way has settler behaviour changed over the past couple of years? I think it's become more brazen. The fact is you have advocates of some of these settler groups, some of which are very violent, in the government, holding key ministerial positions. You know, you've got Itamar Ben-Gavir, who's Israel's Minister of National Security, got um, Smotrich, the finance minister. They're both from staunch representatives of the settler community. So there's there's a much lower willingness from the military, or, or whether it's unwillingness or inability from, from the IDF to push back against the violence. You're seeing certain communities in like key flashpoints in the West Bank in Bolden. So a good example here is the south of, of Nablus. There's some particularly ideological and, and, and violent settlements in that area. And they're just more brazen. They're, they're less restrained by the army. You could say the same in, in kind of the rural areas around Hebron in the south of the, the West Bank, where you have these rural Palestinian communities, which are quite literally being wiped off the map. You know, in recent days, we've seen villages essentially ba- abandoned because settler groups have issued threats that if you don't get out of here, Within 24 hours, we're going to come back and kill you. And it's a difficult issue for the for the IDF. And I think until a few weeks ago, they were always keen to kind of portray that they were doing something about it. You know, a few months ago, we saw senior officials within the IDF referring to certain settler actions as terrorism. And that was hugely, hugely enraged parts of the settler, settler kind of community. The problem is now that pretense really appears to have been lost. The IDF aren't pretending to be doing anything about settler violence. In fact, there's evidence that soldiers may be encouraging it or even or even getting involved. So, you know, I think if you ask Palestinians here in the West Bank, they would say, well, the army's sort of mask has, has, has slipped. And now they increasingly see the settlers who are committing these acts of violence and the army as one. And to be clear, this is in breach of international rule of law and internationally agreed Palestinian territory, which is why we call it the occupied territories. Do you think the West could be doing more to uphold international rule of law or is it difficult? 
I mean, absolutely. Well, you know, when when we use the term settlers, it's it's quite a, a particular legal term, and it refers to illegal those living in illegal settlements in the occupied West Bank, which is, you know, against the Fourth Geneva Convention. The West Bank is occupied territory. You know, we see the British government and, and Western governments issue statements, and I think so far they've refused to meet with some of the more extreme members of this government. So. Ben Gavir and, and this Israeli government, Ben Gavir and Smotrich. But the fact is, despite what they say, there is zero, there, there is zero action has been taken. In, 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 in fact, all the evidence points to, to this, you know, settlement expansion increasing and, and the violence getting worse and the communities being emboldened and, and less restrained. So, I mean, many people here would say the government, the British government could do more. But I, I also think there's a realisation that this is not something that can be solved by the British government. Or, or by the US government. And we've seen quite a few, an increasing number of statements by President Biden. And this has come up even in the last week or two, you know, as, as this kind of crisis in, in Gaza has brewed, Biden has been on the phone to, to Netanyahu telling him to do something about the settlers. And he's also mentioned it in, in phone calls with the, the PA president, Mahmoud Abbas, saying, you know, we understand that this settler violence is a real issue. I mean, there are, there are kind of bits around the edges that the, the British government might be able to, to influence. We have issues like settler products. You know, we have a lot of factories in the settlements, you know, and there's a quite a, quite a strong debate going on in, in Europe at the minute about whether those products should be labelled as, as coming from illegal settlements in the occupied West Bank. You know, many people say they shouldn't be labelled as, as produced from Israel. So there's, there's little, little things around the edges that can be done. But the fact is, I think, Netanyahu's government have been so, so effective in just changing the facts on the ground. And now what, you have more than half a million settlers living in the West Bank. When Israel evacuated the settlements in Gaza, when it withdrew from Gaza in 2005, it was less than 10,000 settlers they, they evacuated, but they pulled out. And those scenes were really traumatic for Israel, the state of Israel, but for the army. You know, you had officers within the army, you know, refusing orders and being court-martialed. So now trying to imagine the army doing something like that on, on 10 times the scale is, is, is really quite difficult. Hello, I'm Charlotte Leslie, the director of the Conservative Middle East Council, and I am joined from the West Bank by award-winning journalist Gareth Brown. You've mentioned Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, and earlier you said that Palestinian Authority authority was ebbing away and decaying, I think was the word you used. Can you talk a bit about that and how that's happened and what the effects are? I think there's multiple tracks to the, the PA, the Palestinian Authority's sort of decay. I think um, some of the issues are to do with Israel's occupation. Um, and I think it's been a, a policy of Israel's government in recent years, certainly to undermine the PA and keep it as weak as possible yet still keeping it alive. Why would that be? Well, you know, the, the PA is, is, at the minute, it's the logical path for, for Palestinians towards statehood. That's what it was always, it was never designed to be permanent. It was supposed to be the embryo of the Palestinian state. And under Oslo, it was meant to last five years and kind of then onward steps would be taken, which would lead to a, the establishment of a full Palestinian state. Now, obviously, you have this right-wing government in Israel, which just has no interest in allowing the Palestinians to have their own state. But then the, the PA does serve a purpose. You'll, you'll often hear Palestinians using the phrase or describing the PA as a subcontractor of the occupation. 
you know, and it has ministries and it runs municipal services. And it means you don't have to have Israeli generals, you know, running hospitals in the West Bank or taking care of the population here because it's occupied territory, Israel is legally obliged to do. So it does some of the dirty work for Israel. So, you know, I think in the eyes of most of the Israeli security establishment, the full-blown collapse of the PA is, is not in their interest. They, they don't want to have to patrol the streets in, in Ramallah. They don't want to have to um, fix sewage pipes in, in Nablus, these sorts of things. But they also don't want a rejuvenated Palestinian authority, which could be a viable partner for peace and which might force them to make concessions, which could nudge the Palestinians closer to statehood. So it's a kind of, it's, it's, it's sort of stuck on, on life support, if you like. I guess the alternative is Hamas, and that doesn't seem to have been, well, it is certainly, you know, after the murderous terror attacks on Israel, that is obviously appalling, but it doesn't seem to have helped the Palestinian, the Gazans, very much either. So surely an Israeli government would prefer a Palestinian authority, one would think, to an emboldened Hamas. Yeah, and I think this is the conundrum that Israel finds itself in at the minute. It spent years undermining the PA and now it's, you know, kind of stated it wants to go into Gaza and crush Hamas. And everyone's asking, well, well, what happens to Gaza after that? You know, there's more than two million Palestinians living there and they're not they're not just going to go away. I think this idea of them being forced into into the Sinai Desert in Egypt is is very unlikely. Egypt's very against that idea. Israel has come out and publicly stated that it wants to you know, get rid of Hamas in Gaza and remove its military capabilities and, and remove it from governance in Gaza. And then the question is, well, what would replace that? And I don't see much appetite from the Israelis to reoccupy Gaza with this heavy invasive occupation that they had you know, before 2005. But then they turn to the PA, which they've been you know, deliberately undermining for you know, a decade now and said, oh, actually, we might need you guys to go in and run Gaza. And, and Palestinian officials here in Ramallah are very reluctant to do that. You know, they can't be seen to, as they say, ride into Gaza on the back of Israeli tanks and set up shop and, and, and run the place. So, you know, this is, a, this is a conundrum, I think, which is part of Israel's own making, that, that we don't have a viable PA at the minute that could take over. I, I, think, I think it should also be said that, you know, the, the PA has also been an enemy of itself. President Abbas has repeatedly delayed elections. He's centralized rule. He's done everything he can to, from, from within to undermine its, its democratic accountability and its, its institutions. And, and in the last few years, you know, just ignoring the occupation for, for a moment, Abbas has really turned the PA into a one-man show. He's put his, his ultra-loyalists into positions of power and, and basically nothing happens in the Palestinian Authority without him saying yes or no. So there's a wholesale need for reform just purely on a, on a, on a Palestinian level. Um, the PA needs to have elections. It needs to rejuvenate its legitimacy. And the only way it can do that is through elections. And only then can it start to think about, you know, taking back control of the parts of the West Bank, which have fallen out of its control, aka Nablus and, and, and Janine but also potentially returning to Gaza. So, you know, you both have the, the Israeli occupations undermining of the PA, but you, you also have this sclerotic system, which has developed under, under Abbas and, and got a lot worse in recent years. It's going to be a really difficult context for any rejuvenation of a party to happen. And that's no easy thing, as we know from the UK, in, in much calmer politics. How will that happen? Is there a role that other states can play? We've already said that 
you know, there's only a limited amount the UK can do and even the US. What about regional actors, Egypt, Saudi? Where do they stand on this and what could they do? I think here is one of the only causes for optimism. And I'm talking specifically about Saudi Arabia. You know, over the last six months, we obviously saw a lot of talk regarding normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia. You know, that follows on from the countries that signed the Abraham Accords a couple of years ago, the Emirates and Bahrain and Morocco. And on the surface of it, that um, seemed like, a, it, you know, if, if Saudi were to normalize with Israel, it would open the door for many other Muslim countries, maybe Pakistan, Indonesia to do so. And that was seen as being a disaster for the, well, for the Palestinians. Actually, I, I think perhaps counterintuitively that alongside those talks, we also saw this rewarming of Saudi-Palestinian relations. I think MBS was really re-engaging with the Palestinian issue. And I think he, he understood from about six months ago, maybe even longer, that you, you can't ignore this issue. You can't forget about it. And he wasn't going to sign a, a normalization agreement with Israel that threw the Palestinians under the bus. And when the attack on Israel by Hamas happened on October 7th, I, I remember thinking, well, surely the Saudis now are going to say, oh, you know, we're out. What, why did we bother? But actually, they're staying the course. They're speaking regularly to the Palestinians. They're speaking to the Americans, they're speaking to the Iranians. Before October 7th, there was, a, I like to say, there was a spring in the Palestinian step. The knowledge that, that Saudi Arabia was kind of willing to get involved in the Palestinian issue was giving people here in Ramallah something to be optimistic about. And they haven't, they haven't cut and run since the 7th. You know, they're still speaking to the Palestinians ready. They're still speaking to the, to the Palestinians. So I think Saudi is going to play a key role if the PA can be rejuvenated both in a political sense, but also in terms of money. Obviously, there's going to be a massive need for reconstruction funds in Gaza. And there's even talk of Arab states playing some sort of administrative role, perhaps even just temporarily in Gaza. But the PA here in Ramallah is facing a real financial crisis. And it's got a lot, it was already facing a financial crisis, but it's got a lot worse since October the 7th. It's struggling, it has for many months struggled to pay the salaries of civil servants and also security forces. Now there's about 34,000 members of security forces in the West Bank. Now it seems that this month the PA is only going to be, be able to pay perhaps 50% of their salaries. And this is from financial pressures that predate October 7th. So next month, you know, we're going to see the effect of the war on the West Bank's economy. So in, crucial to bear in mind here, about 200,000, almost 200,000 Palestinians from the West Bank work in Israel or in Israeli settlements. And they bring a lot of money into the West Bank. It's a really important source of revenue for, for the PA and for the, for the West Bank's economy. That's almost completely ground to a halt. You also have Israel withholding customs revenues, which it's supposed to transfer under its international obligations. So you have a, an acute financial crisis, which is brewing here. Now, now the worry is, what if this month the, the PA are paying their security forces 50% of their salaries? What if that drops next month to 30 or 40%? At what point do a significant number of those 34,000 security personnel stop showing up for work, take their guns back to their villages and decide, you know what, I'm not going to stand for the PA. I, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to do my uh, do my role for the PA and and perhaps you know there'd be a right source of recruitment for for the other armed groups in the West Bank whether that's Hamas or Islamic Jihad or or just some of the the kind of smaller more 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 localized groups. I think in the short term this is an area where 
the UK government and other countries can play a role. If they want to stop the PA from collapsing, they need to make sure that these salaries are being paid in the coming months. And essentially that's money, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars and they can assure that the PA can, you know, pay these salaries through to the end of the year, um, but also, you know, meet its financial commitments to the banks here. That is the most obvious way the British government can help. The problem is since October 7th, all of the indications show that Britain, Europe and the US are, are kind of leaning towards doing the opposite. A number of countries have announced funding to the Palestinians under review. And really, it's the financial crisis that, that could be the death of the PA rather than these security issues that are kind of taking the headlines at the moment. Is that somewhere Saudi could help? Saudi could definitely help as well. This is definitely a place where I can see Saudi Arabia stepping in. I think um, we can look back on that, that speech by Faisal bin Farhan, I think it was earlier this year or last year, where he said, um, you know, this, this kind of time of writing blank checks is over. I think um, we're in crisis mode at the minute. The PA is in crisis mode at the minute. But, but I think in the long run for, for these kind of international donors to step in and save the PA, they're going to want to see this reform. They're going to want to see the re-legitimization of the presidency and of the, the PA. And they're going to want to see the, the parliament here, which is, is right next door to where I'm staying at the minute, uh, sitting again. So they, they, in, in, in the immediate term, they need an inject, injection of funds. But in the mid, mid, medium term, they, they, they need that you know, sustained donor support. But, but they also need to be told you know, that this support is not going to come unless you rejuvenate yourself and re-establish legitimacy with these, these desperately needed reforms. I'm Charlotte Leslie, and I'm speaking to journalist Gareth Brown from the West Bank. Gareth, where does Iran sit in all this? Iran is playing an interesting role. There's been kind of conflicting reports about the extent of Iran's involvement in, in the Hamas attack on October 7th. It depends what you believe. I'm inclined to believe that Iran wasn't directly involved in the plans for that, for that attack. You know, everything I've heard and read suggests to me that October 7th was planned by a very, very small group of Hamas commanders in Gaza. And the political members of the group in Doha and in Turkey and in Lebanon didn't really have a full understanding of, of what was happening until it happened. But they seem to be enormously well resourced. This doesn't seem like resources that a militia group would easily have hold of. The Iranian links with the Al-Qassam brigades, that's Hamas's armed wing, are very, very well established. And there's no doubt that Iran is a source of funds, weapons and rockets. I think that is a Hamas inventory that's been built up over a decade or more. And I think Hamas in Gaza has also become a very, very resourceful organisation. They have the, the ability and the capacity to build, you know, some of these rockets. Their immediate reliance on, on Iran for things like rockets has lessened in, in recent years. But, you know, I think if you look at the fundamentals of that, that operation, it was a very well-rehearsed and disciplined attack by, you know, perhaps over a, a thousand Hamas fighters. And, you know, everyone I've spoken to has said, if Iran were directly involved in the planning of it, it's far more likely that the Israelis would have got wind of it. But then Iran also has this role that's been playing in the West Bank for the last two years, pouring money in and, and weapons in and trying to rock, rock the boat here. And that's particularly evident in, in Janine camp up in the north where they've kind of funded these groups who have been attacking Israeli targets in the West Bank and is, Israelis 
and, and Israel, you know, places like Tel Aviv. Um, so they've been trying to destabilize the, the West Bank, certainly, as much as they've been, you know, kind of throwing money and, and arms at their, their allies in Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza. And then you've got Jordan next door, where they're, they've got their neighbours, Syria and Lebanon. There's a massive captagon narcotics smuggling industry going on. And I guess those networks through Jordan into the rest of the, the Gulf and the world of captagon could be used for other things. And that's that's a Syria, Lebanon, Hezbollah, Iran push, isn't it? I mean, on that, there's no doubt that some weapons are coming through that way. But I will say, having been to probably more than 100 you know, funerals in, in Nablus and, and Janine in the last two years, the, the vast majority of the weapons there are Israeli made. Uh, one of the biggest sources of, of weapons in the West Bank is Israeli military stockpiles, uh, corruption and theft of those, those weapons by armed criminal groups in Israel, and then they're brought in and sort of sold to the militant groups in the West Bank. That's a really critical source of weapons in the West Bank. I'm not saying that the Iranian kind of networks that come in through Syria and Jordan or Lebanon aren't an issue, but for the West Bank, most of the weapons are coming through these means from, um, from the Israeli military stockpiles. The Captagon is an issue. I think Jordan is in a very, very delicate situation at the moment. The Jordanians see the Palestinian Authority as the only real sort of protection against Israel's, well, annexation of the West Bank. They're fully behind the PA and Mahmoud Abbas. You know, having spoken to Jordanian officials, they're really, really worried about what's happening in Gaza and what's happening in the West Bank. And there's the potential, you know, more than 60% of Jordanians are of Palestinian origin. And we have seen in the last few weeks massive demonstrations, not just in Amman, but all over Jordan um, and outside the Israeli embassy in Jordan. And the potential for like domestic unrest, I think, is, is, is quite significant. You know, we saw the king of Jordan in Cairo just a couple of days ago, and he spoke in English, which was very interesting at an Arab summit for him to speak in English. It was, you know, quite an impassioned speech, and he's calling on the world, calling on Britain, Britain to do something. So if we're looking at regional conflagration, you know, we tend to, I think in the last few weeks, we've been speaking a lot about Lebanon and the, the possibility that Hezbollah might get involved. We've obviously got IRGC groups in Syria. We've seen the Houthis firing missiles at Israel from Yemen. But I think we also need to look at this second track, which is the scenes coming out of Gaza and the, the settler violence in the West Bank promote and prompt instability of the PA in the West Bank. And, and that could cause serious domestic problems for, for Jordan. And they're very, very concerned about that. So it's definitely something to, to kind of keep an eye on. I think when, when we look at Jordan, we know it's in a, in a troubled neighborhood, but we don't associate it with these, these Iranian proxies, uh, like you have Hezbollah in Lebanon, right? So it's, it's a different kind of challenge that it's, it's facing, but it's, it's very concerning times for the monarchy. We were, CMEC was in Jordan at the end of September 22nd to the 26th of September. And I guess our key takeaways were that, and these are my words, Jordan is kind of stuck in a toxic triangle. You've got the captagon industry and the destabilizing effect there. It was described more than once to me as, as a war in dealing with that smuggling industry. You've got an unsustainable number of refugees in Jordan. They're massively hospitable, obviously, as the Hashemite tradition, but an unsustainable number, which they said, well, look, we didn't have anything to do with the causes of these people being refugees. That wasn't us, but we're dealing with it. And then thirdly, an acute water shortage, 
all set against a struggling economy because they don't have the same mineral reserves as the rest of the neighbours in the rest of the region. So that even before October the 7th, they seem to be in a very tricky position. And with this happening, you do ask, you know, to, to what extent, how destabilising that will be? Yeah, and, and I think it's important to remember just how critical the Palestinian issue is for the monarchy in Jordan. The king has a, a very important role in East Jerusalem. The king of Jordan is the, you know, the custodian of, of the holy sites in East Jerusalem. It's a very, very delicate role which Jordan plays. And it's, you know, it's, it's custodian because... The Jordanians believe that once a Palestinian state is established with East, East Jerusalem as its capital, this would then be handed over to, to the Palestinians. So it's not a permanent role. The country has such a big Palestinian population, it actually almost has to treat Palestinian issue as a, as a domestic one. This is not entirely foreign affairs for Jordan. So when something happens in the West Bank, it's like it's happening in Jordan. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so delicate. So there are these fundamental issues, fundamental questions of the role that Jordan plays in, you know, dealing with Israel and the Israel-Palestinian conflict, they're, they're being tested in, in the last few weeks and months. And then, as you say, on top of this, the country has got serious water problems. It hosts all these refugees. It's got that northern border with, with Syria. And as you say, it's fighting this war, trying to keep Captagon out trying to not be a transit for, for Captagon. So it, it seems like it's fighting battles on all fronts. And like, this is one of the, the UK and the US's closest allies in the region. And I, I know from speaking to like Jordanian officials, they've been warning about the West Bank for the last two years. They've been publicly saying how much of a risk this settler violence and harassment and aggression at the holy sites in East Jerusalem is. And I think there's a feeling that they haven't been listened to and it's not that they're saying, I told you so, but it definitely seems that they've sort of been proven right because everyone is talking about what's going on in Gaza and the West Bank now, not just in isolation of the Israel-Palestinian conflict, but in terms of how it is going to play out across the region. This is something that the Jordanians have been saying for a long, long time. You're speaking from Ramallah and I'm speaking from London. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a really, I'm going to give you a really simplistic scenario and ask you a question about how the West is seen. So you could say that following the Russia-Ukraine conflict, it became apparent that the Middle East, the Global South and the Far East take a very different view from the West and NATO on many things. And that particularly came out through the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Many were saying in the Middle East is in lots of ways undeclared. Um, it sits geographically between the great economic powerhouse of China and then also looks to the US and that the West should compete to be a global ally of choice. Has the West completely burnt its relations with the Arab world through its response to the events of October the 7th and Israel's response? This is a great question. And I think if you zoom out, there is no doubt that every part of the world other than you know, North America and Western Europe is coalescing against them, whether it's the global South, Arab states, Islamic states in in Asia, it's, it's almost a hark back to sort of a clash of civilizations sort of thing. I don't think there's any understanding in the UK about just how alienating their policy on this conflict is towards friends and allies in the developing world, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in you know any part of the global south or the Middle East. And these things are not forgotten. So 
Yeah, I think this conflict is causing devastating divisions among the global order. And how long that can that go on? How long does it take, you know, whether it's North America or, or the UK to realize that, you know, how long does it take, you know, whether it's the UK or the US to figure out the gulf, to understand the gulf that is developing between them and, you know, African states or, or states in the Middle East? It's incredibly vast and it's like two different worlds. When people are talking about the conflict in the UK compared to what you hear them talking about, whether it's on the streets here or, or you hear through media from the Arab world. And Russia and China? Russia and China, absolutely. I mean, Russia plays an interesting role, right? Russia's always sort of been more friendly to the Palestinians and, and they've had this like interesting relationship with Israel, especially over Ukraine. You know, Russia controls the airspace over Syria and the Israelis have been striking Iranian targets in Syria for many years and they never wanted that to close. So you always saw that Israel's support for for Ukraine in light of the Russian invasion was also always somewhat restrained and that frustrated the US and the UK and even the Ukrainians. And, you know, since the 7th, we've seen the Russians have been quite vocally supportive of the Palestinians and even a Hamas delegation went to Moscow just a few days ago. You know, you can kind of see Russia fulfilling its role as a troublemaker here. But the general point is there is this massive, massive gulf developing and I I don't see that Western governments are even aware of its existence yet. Well, Gareth, probably on that note, thank you very much. You're speaking for Ramallah. I'm here in London. And thank you very much for giving us a voice from Ramallah and helping us understand a little bit the extent of that gulf and what we might need to do to fix it. And I very much hope we can speak again. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.